Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth. Uh, I think I have a great episode for you this week. I checked with one other person who is a blood relative, and they said I was a genius. So I think that sounds positive. Let's get started. Point number one is our hero of the week. Uh, and I've posted about this person twice in the past couple of weeks, both in book form. And the hero this week is Edith Warner. And uh, I'm on the website called the Atomic Heritage Foundation, Foundation which is atomicheritage.org. And I'm going to read you the blurb that they have at the very top of the, of the homepage in regards to Edith Warner. Edith Warner lived in a house next to the Otoe Suspension Bridge in New Mexico, where she fed and entertained many prominent members of the Manhattan Project. For those of you who don't know, that was the Robert Oppenheimer uh, atomic bomb project. Super secret. Warner originally oversaw the Chile Line Railroad as it traveled in and out of Santa Fe, but the outbreak of World War II brought an end to the train. Instead, Warner began hosting dinners in her home, and scientists such as Robert Oppenheimer and Niels Bohr sought her out for food and company. Along with her partner, Adelano Montoya, an elder of the San Ildefonso Pueblo, Warner represented an intersection between the local culture and the lives of the scientists. Both communities accepted her as part of their own. Her unique relationship to the Manhattan Project is chronicled in Peggy Pond Church's 1959 book, The House at Atoy Bridge. You know, you, uh, you can read the, ch the church book in, in no amount of time. It's definitely worth, because it's, it's not a novel, it's a nonfiction book. It gives you the nuts and bolts. And then Frank Waters' book, which I posted about a couple of days ago, which is the novel based on Edith Warner. This was a remarkable woman. She died far too soon, far too early. One of those people that it drives me absolutely insane that I cannot meet her or talk to her. Uh, however, if you go on Google Maps, the house at, the house at Atoy Bridge is still there. It is literally still there. It's a uh, national, not a national monument, but it's a, it's an attraction. I'm not sure you can get right up to it, but I can get close enough to photograph it, which I'm going to do because reading the Frank Waters book uh, allowed me to come up with a new project idea in New Mexico that I think could be a really good one. I mean, it's going to take me several years to pull it off, but um, it could be very, very worthwhile. So that's our hero this week. Point number one is Edith Warner. If you haven't read these books, read them. And if you just, if you don't want to read them, you should at least research her and get the, get the nuts and bolts of how incredible this woman was. Okay. Point number two is about YouTube. And point number two is about skill level. And point number two is about being great. And there's a couple of uh, intersecting ideas here that have come together over the past couple of weeks. As you know, if you've been following this site at all, you realize I've had my battles with learning motion or video going back several years. I never liked it. Every, I thought I would like it, and every time I started to do video or motion, I just said, I don't want to do this. The post-production is overwhelming. The equipment required, the time required, I just can't do it, right? And I knew if I couldn't do it well, I didn't want to do it. But for whatever reason, I don't know, a couple of months ago, I thought, you know what, I, I just got to get over myself and find out a way to do this and just start. Like, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I just know how to, I need to know how to do this. So I talked to my boss at Blurb and I said, look, it would be great to get some time to learn how to do this. And at the same time I'm talking to my boss, I get a call from a friend of mine, Mark Silber, who's in NoCal. And Mark has a YouTube channel called Advancing Your Photography. And I had done some interviews with him in the past, and I'd done some small things in the past, and they had repurposed some other things that I had done. And, you know, I don't really think much about it. When they took it and they would post it, I never looked at those films. I never tra tracked the stats or anything. So Mark calls me and says, look, man, we, we recut a film that we did of you, and we cut a really short part of it, and we cut a little short piece, and it's doing really well. Like, you should make a film on your own about whatever you want to make a film about and send it to me. 
So I was like, okay, well, that's interesting because it's coinciding with the same time at Blurb. And Blurb immediately tasks me with making films like unbox book unboxing things, which I just did one a couple of hours ago, as a matter of fact. And so I've got two, three uh, little short films I have to do for Blurb here this week. Like it's, the pressure is on me. I've got to do uh, the new lay flat stuff, all this other stuff I've got to do. But a couple of weeks ago, I thought, you know, all right, I'm going to do, do a film. And I did this little film called Going Solo with the 50 Millimeter. And it was about going to Albania and giving my second camera to my wife and basically committing to a single lens over a two-week project and never taking that lens off and, like, not even really thinking about equipment, just going until the batteries are dead, basically. So I sent him this film, and I would not classify this film as a great film. I mean, not even remotely close. I would say this is a painfully basic film. So Mark posts it, and long story short, in less than a week, it's got about 50,000 views. And there's quite a few likes and, and some dialogue and comments and all that stuff that accompanies YouTube. And again, I, I gave it to him, and I didn't look at anything. He texted me, wrote me, and said, hey, have you been following the stats of your film? I said, no. And he's like, well, you, you may want to take a look. Like, you're, you're on to something here, man. Something, you know, you're speaking to people about something in a different way kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, so that sounds interesting. So it got me thinking about this idea of great. And one of the things about the film, and any film with me dealing with photography, is, and this, I have to, I have to really make this a verbal announcement up front before I do any more YouTube films, or any, really put any work into the world. And this is the concept of great. And here is the absolute truth of that matter, is I am not a great photographer. I have never been a great photographer, and I never will be a great photographer. And that is not a self-deprecation statement. That is not me playing it down. That is the truth. So every generation around the world, the entire world, there are a handful only, a handful of people who transcend photography, who bring something new to the table. They see the world in a different way, they learn something, a technique, or they do something that nobody's done, and they do it in a way that nobody has done before. There are a handful in the entire world. I was never one of those people. Every single thing I did in photography has been done a thousand times, and it's been done better than the, than the way I did it. So, and I'm completely okay with that. I knew that going in. Great is not a word I use very often. Great is thrown around today so much and so commonly, it has absolutely no meaning. And so, let's say that my film on YouTube got 500,000 views in a week instead of 50,000. That doesn't make me great. Not at all. That doesn't have any, those two things do not have anything to do with one another. So when I put YouTube films out in the future, and I am now, for whatever reason, man, I am loving making these films. And I have a giant list in front of me. I'm on the road for the next three, four, five, six weeks here and there, and I'm going to be making films the whole time. I have an idea for what I want these films to look like, and I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be really fun. I think they're going to be very different from what most of what you see online, um, because you know, when I was talking to Mark earlier, he said, look, you don't know anything about YouTube. You don't know the things that you're supposed to do. And I said, no, I don't. And I don't want to know because I don't want my films to look like everybody else. I don't care if five people look at it or 5,000. It doesn't matter. So, but I want to get back to the concept of great. I'm not great. I probably never will be. And that's totally okay. I've known that going in because for me as a, let's say that if you stripped me, stripped me down and, and I said to you, okay, I'm going to describe myself in, a, in one sentence, which would be long-term black and white documentary photographer. 
Well, there's one little problem with great, if that's how I describe myself. And that is that there are people like Gene Smith and Sebastian Salgado who came along long before me, who are way better, who have transcended the world in terms of the work that they've put out, the quality of work, the quantity of work, the packaging, the books, the exhibitions, and the lasting resonance of the images that they made. Those are way beyond anything that I'm ever going to be able to accomplish. So I am, I'm, I'm playing, right? There's, the, and there's, there's nothing more than that. So when you see me put a, a YouTube film into the world about photography, don't think I'm putting it out there because I think I'm great. I don't. I'm just a dude with a camera who likes to do this, who might have an interesting philosophy about why and what he's doing, or maybe not. So that's point number two. Point number three is about football. And for those of you who don't watch football, I'm totally fine with that. You may or may not want to listen to this point uh, because this is about not watching football. So as you, some of you might know, um, you know, I grew up playing football. I really liked to play football. If I wasn't 50 and too old and slow and brittle to play, I'd probably still be out there playing. Um, I loved football, whether it was flag or tackle or tackle with no helmets. We did everything idiotic you could possibly do with a football. And consequently, you know, I grew up in the country. My, my mom and my brother were Chicago Bear fans. My father was a Packer fan when we lived in Indiana. And then we moved to Texas, and my father switched his allegiance to the Cowboys, which I could never quite understand. My sister's impartial. And I was, I was all over the place. When I was a little boy, I was a Bears fan because my older brother was. And then I, some, I think there was a Raider patch in there. I, there's a picture of me on a plastic bicycle, a little electric three-wheeled, uh, like, fake cop motorcycle thing. And I have a Raiders jacket on, so I don't know what happened there. And then in the early 80s, I chose the New Orleans Saints. And I'm like, I don't care how bad they are. I'm, I'm a Saint fan. And I was a Saint fan until the end of last season. Now, when I say football fan and Saint fan, I hardly ever watch games. And if I do see a game, it's a, it's a tiny piece of a quarter. I, I can't remember the last time I watched a full football game. I'd probably go out of my mind if I tried to do that. So at the end of last season, if you don't know what happened in the NFL, it was pretty unique. The Saints were playing the Los Angeles Rams in New Orleans, and it was the NFC Championship game, meaning the winner goes to the Super Bowl. And when a team goes to the Super Bowl, you have to take your mind off of the players and the organization, and you have to start thinking about things like community, cities. And it, it's a huge financial thing for a city to get a team into the Super Bowl. And case in point was when the Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. One of the big ways that that city recovered were the Saints. And the Saints eventually made the Super Bowl, and it was a, it was a huge deal, very unique in the history of football. In fact, the Saints had to play their quote-unquote home games away because the, the stadium was, the, the Superdome was too destroyed for them to play there. So at the end of last season, the Saints are playing the Rams, and the Saints are winning, and they're just about ready to, to win the game, and there is a, there's a blown call on the field, and a lot of people are saying it's the worst call in the history of the game. And I would agree, I don't think I've ever seen something so blatant and so easy missed and to have the outcome flip the, the outcome of the game and it sent the Rams to the Super Bowl and not the Saints. And I was like, wow, that's, it's profound. The league has to like turn this over. I mean, I've never seen that happening or heard, heard of that happening, but it's so obvious. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the commentators who are commentating these games are like, this is the worst call we've ever seen. This cost the Saints the Super Bowl. You know, the city of New Orleans just got, just got jobbed, blah, 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 blah. Well, a funny thing started to happen, which was nothing. 
the league was totally silent for one day, two days, three days goes on, and all of a sudden people are like, what is going on? The league made no statements, nothing. And all of a sudden the league comes out, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. And I'm like, already I'm starting to go, wait a second, like something's not right here. So, of course, they don't overturn it. The Rams go to the Super Bowl and lose. The league doesn't care because the Rams have a big TV market in Los Angeles, and so they're probably bigger than New Orleans. And so they're like, oh, this is great. You know, for us, financially, it's pretty pretty great. But I thought, okay, well, obviously in the offseason, they'll address this. They'll fix it. So, you know, moving forward, the integrity of the game is intact, right? I'm an idiot. I'm completely naive for even thinking there was something called integrity of the game. I, I'm, I was in my 1950 mode or 1930 mode. I don't know. So anyway, what, guess what happens in the offseason? Nothing. They don't address this problem at all. There's no solution. There's no instant replay. There's no nothing. It's just business as usual. And you, I realized, you know, there is no integrity of the game. This is a $15 billion a year revenue-generating uh, league. This is the big one of, the, of all the sports leagues. The NFL is so dominant. $15 billion a year. And I have a sinking suspicion the reason why they didn't implement replay was that the owners didn't want to pay for it. And you're hearing all kinds of things of like, oh, they didn't do it because it's, it'll slow the game down or whatever. The fans, man, they're, they're so rabid for football. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And what I realized was the only real goal and the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, how he still has a job is, well, I know exactly why he still has a job because he puts money in the pockets of owners. But, you know, if, if he worked outside of the NFL, he would have been fired a long time ago. He's done, there's been so many scandals involving Roger Goodell over the years. But I realized the owners are making money, right? It's a 15 billion in revenue. The owners are making God knows how much money and they don't care. And get this, the, they've been tasked with increasing the revenue to 25 billion in the next seven years. So, they know what they've got. They've got a cash cow. They don't, the game itself is really falling away in terms of importance. You know, we've got more media coverage. We've got more online coverage. We've got probably more people than ever watching. And some weird thing is it, that happens is the game, the, the fiber of the game disappears in the circus that surrounds it. So what I've figured out is I don't watch football anymore. And it's really interesting because when fall hits in the back of my head, I think about, oh, eating so much food, I have to take my pants off. You know, that's a trick my brother and I mastered years ago. And also, the weather gets cooler, you're inside potentially a little bit more, and football's on. You know, you got college on Saturday, and, you got, and now you have pro on, like, Thursday nights, and you have sometimes you have a Saturday game, and then most of the time you have Sunday, then you have Sunday night games, and you have Monday. They've sp they spread this out, and I'm like, wow, this is great. And now I don't have to watch any of it. I just don't. The Saints are literally playing in in seven minutes. The Saints, their first game of the season starts, and I have absolutely no interest in watching that game whatsoever. I kind of feel like it's it doesn't matter what happens. If they win every game or they win no game, it doesn't matter. The league has completely lost me as a fan, and the beauty of that is I have so much more time to do other stuff. And again, I barely watched NFL. I'm not one of those guys that goes to a sports bar that I've never been in a fantasy league. I don't understand that at all. I, I, you know, it's just not my thing. And now it's all gone. So that's my, my third point. First point was Edith Warner is our hero. Second point, YouTube skill level views and what does great actually mean. Third point was football. And the fourth point is about um, two things. And I'm, I love, I'm gonna love the reaction of, of some people on this, uh, on this site because I've found something very interesting, which is if you say 
anything negative about the United States, and by the way, what I'm about to say is negative, but it's not just about the United States, it's global. But if you anything I say is interpreted as being anti-American or even shining any kind of investigative lens on America that's labeled as like, you know, uh, leftist propaganda or whatever, that is just insane. But I want to talk about corporate malfeasance and I want to talk about the greater, the concept of the greater good. And I'm very curious what your thoughts are on this. And I just want to give you a list of corporate scandals. These are recent corporate scandals. We could go way back, and there are many, many, many more. Number one, Enron. Number two, Volkswagen. Number three, Lehman Brothers. Number four, Uber. Number five, Apple. Number six, BP, which is British Petroleum, which you'll know from the, uh, the, oil, the oil leak in the Gulf a few years ago. Number seven is Facebook. Number eight is Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and the pharmaceuticals obviously in the news here recently with the whole opioid epidemic in the United States, which we are now learning was a very carefully crafted uh, attack by the pharmaceutical companies. Number nine, Kobe Steel. Number 10, Equifax. I'm going to go out and add a few more here. I'm going to add Toyota and Honda for airbag scandals uh, over the past few years. And I'm going to throw Google in there because they've done a million things that are uh, questionable to say the least. So here's, here's my question about this. When, as a human being, when you go through your, your day as a human being, what percentage of the time are you thinking about yourself? And what percentage of the time are you thinking about other people? Because the, all of these corporations knowingly, over an extended period of time, knowingly did things that were in direct opposition to the greater good of society and culture. In the, the complete opposition, they knew exactly what they were doing was wrong. They, and I guarantee you, just think of how many meetings were held, how many secret meetings, how many emails, don't put this on the server, how many secret things were done over an extended period of time to pull off something like the financial crisis of 08 or the Volkswagen scandal. You know, and oh, by the way, you know, when you dig into that Volkswagen scandal and you realize that once the, the media firestorm died down, there was a second chapter to that that was just mind-blowingly bad. Then you look at what Apple's done, you look at what Facebook has done, you look at what the tech companies have done, the pharmaceutical companies, and it's like these are extended, extensive programs that have hundreds if not thousands of people involved, and it's top-down. And it, they, they know what they're doing is wrong, and they do it anyway. And I'm just wondering, for maybe there's somebody on this that's listening to this that's an old-timer that's in their 80s or 90s. Do you remember this being so commonplace, and does that impact you? Does it make you feel differently? I mean, I still know tons of people who are on Facebook all day long, every day, and these are people who on one side claim to be living their life in a specific way, and yet on the other side are still using Facebook to like market, and then pretending that what Facebook has done and what they are doing isn't bad, or it's not affecting them, or they're not part of the problem. I just do not understand that. And I tell my wife probably six times a week, she hates it when I say this. We're out in the world, we're, we're in, in a situation, and you have a choice in front of you. And I say to her, and I look at her, and now she knows what I'm going to say without me even saying it. She just starts making a face. My expression to her is, you always do the right thing. No matter how painful it is, no matter if you have to wait in line, no matter if you have to drive around again and look for a parking place, no matter if you found that bag of you know, unmarked cash on the street, you return it, you always are the better person. You always lean forward and say, I'm going to own it, I'm going to own my actions, and I'm going to do the right thing. 
I just, I'm wondering when we went so wrong as, as, a, as a country, as a species, that first of all, we've allowed the corporations to get this kind of control and power over everything, over the government, over industry, et cetera, over our healthcare. Uh, I heard something, just to talk about malfeasance a little bit more. I was listening to an NPR interview with a, with a woman who wrote a book recently, and I can't, of course I'll never remember the name of the book, and it was basically about apps and about you know, security and things like that. And she was talking about healthcare apps, and I'm sure you could find this on, on NPR, and I need to find this book and read it. It sounded fascinating. And she was talking about healthcare apps and how in 2000, whatever, 2002, you know, your, your relationship to your doctor online was basically like a three-point triad, a three-point uh, attack. And now there's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different access points or whatever. Well, apparently, there's a, there's a decent percentage of these apps that are available out there. And there's hundreds, if not thousands, of healthcare apps that on download, without you ever opening the app, get this. So just think about this. You say, oh, I want to use this healthcare app. And you download it onto your phone. Without ever opening it, they're turning on your camera. They're turning on your audio recorder. They're accessing your contact database, and they're calling and emailing people through your contact database without you ever opening the app. So again, the tech companies, I think, right now are the perfect example of just unbridled chaos. There's no government oversight. They know the kind of power and money they have, and there's no one controlling them. And let's face it, the, the people who are running these tech industries are not good people. They're not. I mean, how much evidence do we need to have? The people running the pharmaceutical companies who've been involved in these scandals, these are not good people. And so I'm just curious where you think this is going to go. I have my thoughts as to where this is going to go. And if you're someone who thinks we shouldn't be talking about this, why should we not be talking about this? I'm very curious about that. And by the way, is what I just said, is this a political thing? Is this a, a democratic thing or a Republican thing or a libertarian thing? I don't see it as that. I see it as crime, fraud. And so to turn it into a political thing is very peculiar to me. So anyway, uh, I'm going to keep talking about this stuff because it's affecting everybody that's listening to this call. You know, it's like the sunrise, kind of hard to miss. All right, that was point number whatever. That was point number four. Um, point number five is back to sports, and, uh, but it's not about the sport itself. It's about the culture surrounding the sport. So last night, what is today? Monday? Yes. Yesterday, Rafael Nadal won his 19th Grand Slam tournament. Now, my all-time favorite player is Federer. Um, and I played tennis in high school and college. I was never any good. It was like photography. I sucked. And any, I liked to play, but like, you know, kids had like coaches and physicians and trainers and stuff. And I was living in Wyoming every summer, you know, like, you know, branding cows and stuff. So it didn't help my, my, my tennis game, but I enjoyed the sport. Now it hurts too much to play, so I, I don't play anymore. But Nadal is the best competitor on the tennis court I've ever seen. He, it doesn't matter if he's about to lose its match point. He's going to play just as hard as he did on the first point. And that is such a commendable thing. I think mentally he's much stronger than Federer. I think no one has been as strong as Nadal over the past 15 years. Very impressive dude. And this young kid who was in the final with him, who is very intriguing to me. He is one of the most intriguing tennis players to come around in a long time. His coach said that he is potentially... And he said it in a way that's very interesting, if you can find the interview. His, his coach said, you know, he might be a genius. You know, I don't know. He's, all I know is he's really different. 
and he's different in ways that make me think he we could be looking at a genius here so he took nadal to five sets at the us open that is a pretty astounding thing especially after nadal won the first two sets he was 208 in one after winning the first two sets so you know you lose two sets to him and you might as well be thinking about where you're going on vacation anyway this kid fought back so one of the big stories in tennis over the past you know couple of years has been how the hell do these older players, which are Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal, how do they keep winning? Like, where are, where's the next generation? Because you hear about all these players coming up, like the guy that was in the final, Medvedev, he's a Russian kid. And you've got Zverev, who's the German kid, and you've got all these kids, but they, they, don't, they don't win. You know, these, these big tournaments, the Grand Slam tournaments are still being won by the big three. And I, I, have, a, I have a theory, and you're gonna laugh at me, and that's totally fine. My theory is, and this goes back to the dawn of human beings, our species, sitting around campfires on the African savanna, right? We discovered fire. Fire allowed us to be stationary and be protected and allowed us to start making art, playing music, and develop language. And when we developed these things, the human realized initially, this was the very first moment that this was happening, the human realized we had a self there was a being, that we were a being, that we had a self. That was probably a monumental uh, decision around that campfire, gnawing on some undercooked leg of some species. So these three guys, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, they came into the tennis world prior to social media being the driving force it is today. So they are not affected by the social media component of their life of being a certain pretending to be a certain thing on social media and all of these kids that are coming up whether it's and i don't know about medvedev i don't know what his social things but the perfect person to think about is kyrios nick kyrios he's this australian guy that's constantly getting in trouble he's a very interesting player has worlds of talent but he's got like a you know he just mentally can't keep it together and he does really really stupid stuff on a regular basis right if he just shut up and played the fans would love him, and he'd probably be winning a lot of tournaments, including Grand Slams. He's that talented, but he can't get out of his own way. This is a social media kid. He is on social media, from what I know from reading media reports, on all the time. In fact, some of these people have been busted for being on social media while they're on the changeovers on court. And I, I think what we're talking about here is we're talking about two generations. We're talking about a generation that, was, that came along before their identity was tied to being online. And now we're talking about this new generation whose entire existence is tied to being online. And what you're seeing is the benefit of that. And what you're seeing is the detriment of that. You're seeing these guys get destroyed by people who have singular focus about winning. That's it. They win on court and all this other nonsense of being online and pretending and getting likes and building a following and doing all the same stuff that all of us do on social media Yes, they have social media. So Nadal's on it. I'm sure Federer's on it. I'm sure Djokovic is on it. Or they have people that are on it, but they can manage it. And when I keep hearing these announcers say, gee, I wonder why these young kids aren't coming up, that's my philosophy. My philosophy is that they are living an online life, and it's, in, it's uh, impacting the life that they're living on the court. So I would be very curious if there was someone out there in the tennis world who was at that level that just said, I'm done. I'll do advertising, I'll do my whatever, but I'm not going on social, I'm not thinking about this, I'm not engaging with fans on social. All I'm gonna do is train and focus on winning. Be very curious to see what happens. Do you think I'm absolutely off base on that? I have no idea, probably am. 
All right, the last point is uh, gonna be a shorter one. And uh, this is about multi-year photographic projects. Now, I'm 50 years old. I went to photojournalism school. I came up in the film era, not the digital era. I didn't have the internet. I had no computer. I had no cell phone, nothing. So when I learned photography and I realized very quickly that I wanted to do long-term projects, I began to look around at the people in the world who were doing long-term projects. And these were the, as I mentioned before, Gene Smith, Sebastian Salgado, uh, one of the first photographers I found who actually came to the University of Texas and taught, and the school would not let me take her class because I was a transfer, was a woman named Maggie Stieber who did a book called Dancing on Fire, which was about the, the uh, Haiti in the 1980s. That was a long-term project, multi-year. These are uh, Alex Webb doing his projects. These were the people that I was looking at and saying, this is what I want to do. And when you dove into those projects and you realized how long it took to do them, you realized that you were looking at multi-year, four, five, six, seven, ten years. You know, Salgado would work in these ten-year increments, and he would just do the most mind-blowing projects that anybody in the world has ever seen. Still to this day, I, th I would put him at the top of the of the documentary photography world. But these are multi. Let me just repeat that: multi-year projects. And a guy like Salgado or Gene Smith or Maggie Stieber. They're not, you know, when they were doing these projects, they're not living the life that I'm living now, which is I work full-time for Blurb, which takes X amount of time. I'm doing a cycling thing that takes X amount of time. They were photographers. That's what they did. They worked, Sebastian Salgado's full-time job was making pictures. So it's a little bit different scenario, but I have so much respect for people who work this way because I know the kind of quality and the kind of depth that you can get when you spend that, that amount of time doing this. But I've noticed something interesting. And this just happened to me, and it was like someone just literally roundhoused me in the neck when this happened. And I, and I made me want to speak about it here, and it, it also impacted what I'm going to do in the future. So I did a body of work once that took about five years, and it's one of the best bodies of work that I've done. And not that it got published. I didn't get fame. I didn't make—I lost money on the project. I mean, that's just the way it, the way it is. And I haven't worked on this project for years, but I probably did it from like late 90s to middle, middle, you know, 2005, something like that. And again, I lost a ton of money doing this project, but it's a good body of work. So as I was going along, I knew that I was going to lose money on this. I had no dream or fantasy that someone was going to pay me to do this. In fact, by this time, I'd already learned I didn't want to do projects on assignment. I don't want assignments because most photo editors and most organizations that I was working with, they just didn't have any idea what they were doing. That sounds that, that illogical, but it's true. They had their own set of, they had their own agenda. We need this, this, and this, and we need it in this time, and you have to shoot it this way. And I looked at it and said, I have absolutely no interest in doing that whatsoever. I want to be left alone, and I want to go do my own work. And I still feel that way today, 100%. I would not do assignments for basically anybody at this point. I can't imagine do, picking up a camera on assignment for someone else. That just does not sound fun to me. But I did these multi-year multi programs, and you know, it's not just the shooting. It's the film processing, it's the printing, it's the editing, the sequencing, making the promotional pieces, making the books and magazines from the work. It's, it's, that is all part of the package. It's not just making the pictures. So a couple, I guess about 10 days ago, I'm, someone says, hey, can I, see that, um, can I see that body of work? And the person who asks is an online person. They're just perpetually online. And I showed them this thing. And I swear to God, in less than 20 seconds, they looked at the entire project and they said, oh man, great, what else do you have? And I realized that my five-year project 
that was it. It was done. No more interest in seeing it. No more interest in actually reading what the project was about. No more interest in anything. That person looked at it, 15 seconds, took it in, and was distracted and moved on. And what else do you have? And what that, first of all, that is so sad that this is the way that people are consuming this stuff. That uh, it's impacted the, the way that I'm, what I'm going to do moving forward in terms of the projects that I'm doing. So I have an ongoing project in California, and I have two in New Mexico. These are multi-year. The New Mexico projects are four years. One of them is four years in. One of them is brand new. And the California project is about a year and a half at this point. Um, and I'm trying to get over there in November to work on it again. And that's probably at least another year before I would have something uh, worthwhile to like really package up. Maybe two years because it isn't. It is in California, and I don't get over there that much anymore. But it just I made me realize I don't want to share stuff until it's done because here's the risk that you run and especially for you people that are on Instagram and things like that is if you share one millimeter too much it's over it's over I've already seen it already done that I, I would say that if you did a project that had a hundred photographs a hundred like it let's say it took you 10 years and you made 10 pics a year and you ended up with these things and you're packaging them I think if you shared four of those on Instagram you'd lose it. People would lose interest. They would tell you they've already seen the project and they would ask for what else you're doing because that is how fragile we are as a, as a race now in terms of our attention. And this is a really key ingredient for any of you out there who are trying to do this for a living is you have to be really careful about what you do now in terms of sharing these things because a multi-year project like that is it's so difficult to get attention to get people to slow down uh, the last book that i posted on my read category which which was called goodbye to a river that book was written i believe in 1959 and in the first page of the book when the author puts his canoe into the river he said the hardest part of this entire thing was slowing down was getting out of that mainstream culture and getting onto a river by myself for three weeks at a pace that's so unlike being in culture and society. And that was in 1959. So imagine how fractured, how absolutely obliterated our attention is now. So if you're trying to do this and you're tr you have a body of work or you have a cause or something, you have to be very specific about where it goes and how much you share and how you share it, et cetera. That's my final point of this long and rambling podcast again, which I love doing. I could easily do this every day. I could sit, I could be the Joe Rogan. I could be exactly like Joe Rogan without the audience. I could totally do that every single day and without the multi-cameras and the video and the studio and the success and, you know, and the talent and all the friends. So other than that, I'm basically Joe Rogan. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this installment. Let's recap. Edith Warner was our hero. YouTube skill level and what is great. Football, no need to watch anymore. Corporate malfeasance and the greater good. Are, is it just me or is this a weird time? Tennis, I think the prior generation that was non-internet generation, is that's why they're still on top. And multi-year photo projects, be really careful about how you share them and how much you share before they're done because you can erase all of your gains very, very quickly. So I hope you guys all have a great week and um i really appreciate you listening if you've come along this far i'd be amazed but um anyway there's more on the way thanks and we'll see you soon